0: Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, yo-ho, yo-ho, a space pirate's life for me. This is Treasure Planet. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a
1: person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies.
0: Movies like Treasure Planet, which we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into that, how are you doing this week, Ian?
1: Well, I'm going to give the very positive, optimistic, aspirational answer and say I'm fine.
0: Yeah. How are you doing? I'm same. I'm in a little bit of a funk this week, but this movie kind of helped pull me out of it that we're talking about today.
1: Yeah. I think we may have set ourselves up to feel bad because we did a movie that we really didn't like on a very recent pod and it might have put us both in a funk. And then then we switched to this week's movie and it just seems so damn wholesome in comparison. I I may be like I've overrated this movie by five points just because it's not. That's my boy, which thank God it's not.
0: Lifted my spirits like the solar winds lift a (laughs) surfboard in space.
1: Exactly like
0: that. <laughs> For a very strained metaphor. Yes. But, yeah, no, I'm feeling better after spending some time with this movie. I watched it once by myself, once with my son, and he literally said, Whoa space pirates. I was like, yeah, man, <laughs> fucking space pirates. That
1: sounds so, up man. That's perfect.
0: That's where we're at. So, before we get into the movie that we're talking about this week, even though we've already delved into it a tiny bit, we'd like to talk about something else we watched that was not for the podcast. We do have lives and interests outside of this podcast, hard to believe with all the time we spend on it.
1: Yeah, a little bit. We keep up appearances. Yeah. What did you watch this week that you wanted to talk about? Well, I've been watching and rewatching bits and pieces of a comedy special called Inside by Bo Burnham, if you have not heard of it, it's on Netflix. It is really good. And if you haven't watched it and felt that way yourself, you may have heard some of your comedy nerd friends tell you the same thing. And I'm going to tell you the same thing. I think it's a genuine artistic achievement. And at the same time, I hate to say that because it's a terrible way to approach a piece of entertainment. And someone tells you, oh, it's art. And you go, oh, well, fuck that guy. What is he? Th- he thinks he's making art. But it just blew me away. It checks so many boxes for me. I relate to it all these different ways, as a frightened, sad person, as a pandemic survivor, as an internet junkie, and especially as somebody who myself tries to make comedy and music and video and do things like that alone in my apartment. It just really at home in all these ways. And it just made me feel so much feelings and feeling feelings is what I look for most of all from movies. And this movie, well, I think of it as a movie more than a comedy special. This movie really did it for me. Sure. I mean, even
0: the term comedy has to be thrown around pretty loosely to apply to inside, which definitely makes you laugh at times, but also makes you sad, angry, a little embarrassed sometimes, <laughs> like that secondhand embarrassment you get for people. And that's not, I think that's intended. I'm, I'm not saying like we should be embarrassed for Bo Burnham that he made this. I'm saying like the kind of private thoughts he's revealing to all these people. Yeah, it's very you know, you personal. Get and bashful.
1: Yeah, it's very painful and raw at times.
0: But yeah, I, I'm a big Bo Burnham fan. I've been following his career for some time now. So it seems like the culmination of his comedy persona. And it's been quite a while since he released Make Happy. Uh, I think that was 2016. So nobody was really sure if he was going to release another special. Maybe he wouldn't have if not for COVID and where we all found ourselves.
1: Yeah, probably wouldn't have been this. But that's why I think of him as an artist when he did this, because he went into it with kind of a blank slate. He could have done anything just goofy comedy songs or straightforward comedy along the lines of what he's done before. But he really took him to a new place, at least for parts of this. There's parts of this that are his stock sort of parody of Instagram and those kind of things. Not 100% of it is like incredibly deep and fresh and insightful. But as a whole, it's just a really cool thing. It's just really involving and moving. And I waited a while to talk about it on this podcast just because I was like overwhelmed with the feelings I had about it. And now I feel a little bit more able to talk about hopefully I'm doing a decent job and anyone who hasn't seen it will want to try to watch it because that's what I... Hope you will do.
0: Yeah. I also recommend it. I'm not here to talk about that today because that's Ah. your movie for the day. I have another movie, though, that I feel very strongly about. And if anybody follows me on Letterboxd, I gave it a rare five-star review recently. There's only three or four movies I think I've given that to. But it was another round. The Mads Mikkelsen Danish film that won the Oscar for Best International Film this year. Oh, okay. Thomas Vinterberg was nominated for Best Director. He did not win, obviously, but it was a worthwhile nomination. The premise of the movie is basically these four friends that are middle-aged and floundering in life uncover this old scientific study that theorizes human beings operate with a blood alcohol content that's 0.05 too low as an everyday, like there's an imbalance in people that they need to be a little buzzed to be at peak performance for their life. Interesting. So they undertake this experiment together and start taking sips of booze throughout the the day, at work, at home. They they need to be buzzed whenever they're awake, basically, but they limit it to weekdays only and during work hours, which is kind of funny. <laughs> and of course, it goes horribly wrong in some ways, and it works in other ways, so it doesn't outright glorify this approach or vilify it. It lets you draw your own conclusions, but really, really good movie. And uh, I see it classified as a comedy a lot. I would say it has funny moments for sure. It's much more of a drama, but just really, really moving movie. Great acting, of course, by Mads Mikkelsen. You see him play this kind of omnipotent band badass more often, right. I think, in American cinema, but you get to see a much more vulnerable side of him and multi-layered. So it was really a great movie, and I highly recommend it. You will have to use subtitles, so if you're scared of that, uh, grow up. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that sounds really awesome, because I'm scared of Mads Mickelson. so like to have him be vulnerable and layered and, and interesting actually sounds really fun to me. And I love movies with subtitles somehow. I, I love picking up the rhythms of other languages, and that's just something that's rewarding that's not there in movies in my native English. I
0: think part of it is you are forced to pay closer attention to a movie with subtitles and just with the way our brains are wired nowadays it's hard to not look at your phone check right the sports score check twitter whatever while you're watching a movie because you can hear it and you're like well i'm still paying attention totally but with subtitles if you look away from the screen for a second you might miss something really important so it keeps your focus yeah 100 on the movie and i find myself with uh subtitle movies like forming a stronger connection to them because of that sometimes
1: i'm gonna have to check that out thank you for the five star recommendation i cannot ignore that
0: absolutely yeah i can't really find a flaw with this movie so i had wow. to uh, i stopped myself for a second said are you really gonna do this like, <laughs> i think the other five star movies i have are like jaws and zodiac and no country for old men which are like the other three of my favorite movies yeah of all time it's exciting to find
1: a new movie that goes into your all-time favorites that's like a that's a big event so congratulations
0: thank you well this movie isn't quite a five-star movie that we're going to talk about, but it's at least four, maybe four and a half. I it's, really dug this movie quite a bit.
1: It is very solid. And it was, like we said, in the lens of where we came from last week, even more so. It is just a wholesome, all-around good movie. It holds you up and never drops you. It's like you can do a trust fall into this movie and it will support you. Yeah, I expect that
0: it's drag on rewatch just because I think when you watch a movie twice really close together, you can find yourself looking for the exit door when yep. it gets towards the the last third of a movie, but no, not with this one. It, it was, it's very propulsive. It, it moves along at a great pace. It doesn't have a lot of filler. All their performances are stellar. Okay. Uh, and just, the art style and the animation is so cool to watch. It, it keeps your eye glued to the screen at all times. There's something interesting to look at at all times.
1: Yeah, I found that on my most recent rewatch is that I was actually glued to the screen more on watch number three, which I did this afternoon than on the previous one. And I found all kind of new things to enjoy just about the look of the visuals.
0: Yeah, sadly, this didn't connect with audiences at the time. So it's going to be interesting to try to figure out why that was because it's got all the makings of an animated classic, in my opinion. And I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old that agree, so I don't know where it went wrong, but we're going to try to parse that out, but we got to start at the beginning, so should I talk about how this movie came to be created?
1: Yeah, how did this thing happen?
0: So, in 1985, before the duo had directed a single movie together, Ron Clements and John Musker pitched the idea for an animated movie that they were calling at that time Treasure Island in Space. Disney CEO Michael Eisner rejected the pitch on the basis that Paramount Pictures was developing a Star Trek sequel also based on Robert Louis Stevenson's famous book. The Star Trek movie would never materialize, and Clements and Musker would pitch the idea to Disney again after the release of their hit movie, The Little Mermaid, but they were once again rejected. They directed and released another huge hit for Disney with Aladdin and tried to pitch their Treasure Island movie yet again with no luck.
1: They got a whole
0: new Frustrated with Disney's refusal, Clements and Musker sought the help of feature animation chairman Roy E. Disney. Roy let Eisner know he had faith in the project, and Eisner agreed to produce the movie once Clemens and Musker finished work on the movie Hercules for the studio. Principal animation on the film, now known as Treasure Planet, would begin in 2000 with a crew of approximately 350 working on it. By the time the movie was completed, the crew size would swell to over 1,000. With an art style that combined traditional pirate imagery with sci-fi and steampunk influences, Treasure Planet would utilize traditional hand-drawn 2D animation, computer-generated 3D animation, and CGI environments. The massive crew ballooned the budget to $140 million. Balloon of a thousand worlds. And the film was released on November 17th. 2002 the movie received mostly positive reviews but was a massive miss for the mouse as the film ended up grossing only 38.1 million dollars domestically and 109.5 million dollars worldwide making it the biggest box office failure for disney up to that point with an estimated loss of 70 million dollars ouch yeah. I mean, Disney would go on to have bigger losses, some of which we've already covered on this podcast, some of which we will in right. the near future, but <laughs> this one hurts. And they had a little bit of a miss with Atlantis, which was not a smash hit the year prior, and it's like an inferior version of this movie, but well, I think we'll also talk more about that yeah. uh, a little later on. But yeah, it's it's a really good movie. It's clearly made with a lot of love and care. These two guys pitched it for 15 years before finally getting the chance to, to make it, so they obviously had a lot of passion for this project.
1: Yeah, and I don't think they were wrong. I mean, I think they were on the right track. They had a really cool story. They very thoroughly used the bones of the story from Robert Louis Stevenson. The Billy Bones, you might say. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sorry. And then Billy Bones croaked on them. So that's unfortunate. But yeah, it's so good. And you really love what it does. And you go, oh my gosh, yeah, this is one of those things that somebody a long time ago thought of to put into the story the various conceits about pirates hiding, posing as the legitimate crew of a ship and your heroes and your villains cohabitating during Mm -hmm. this voyage and the tension that that creates. It's just super interesting. And even though it's actually like a super old story uh, piece that they borrowed from the 1800s, it feels fresh because it feels better than 90% of the story ideas that get made into movies.
0: Like you mentioned, having our hero really in the hornet's nest with these villainous characters makes it a pretty tense and scary movie for a kid's movie and I was interested to find when I went to watch this movie on Disney Plus I was on my son's profile which is set up as a child's profile okay you can't find it
1: oh there's a few
0: movies that Disney did this to a lot of the newer I don't want to call them live action but like the fully CGI remakes like the Lion King and the Jungle Book those are not available on kids profiles I guess because they're too scary Moana is not available on kids profiles another Clement Musker movie and and then Treasure Planet. I had to log into my adult account to even watch it on Disney+. Plus. So, clearly, Disney's a little concerned about some of the elements in this movie being a little too much for kids, and I agree. It didn't feel like a kid's movie the whole way through.
1: Yeah, there are some prominent characters that die. I think that's probably the number one thing. There's some scariness, there's some scary character action, but I think the main thing that parents would probably say, hey, I don't want my kids watching this, is heroic characters just biting the dust in the middle of right. the movie, and that's maybe too much to explain to your four-year-old.
0: Right. Disney's fine with killing a villain or killing a parent but just like an auxiliary <laughs> character that is noble and just,
1: yeah, a really good dude that like you trusted to keep you safe that's actually for me as an adult that was actually a scary moment it's like this was like this was your safety dude you're like oh shit my heroes are in this nest of pirates and they don't know it but thank god there's a big strong competent dude to uh, make sure nothing goes wrong and then we have to say goodbye to that guy
0: and the way he dies is pretty horrifying in, in practice but uh, well i guess we can we're getting a little <laughs> bit ahead of ourselves yeah but, yeah when you think about the ramifications of the way he dies it's it's kind of like oh that's dark
1: it's fucked up yeah <laughs> so,
0: i don't know do you want to run through the story so we can get to all these points we're clearly excited to talk about
1: yeah let's jump into the story all right so in a fantasy galaxy of interstellar sailing ships and space pirates jim hawkins played by joseph gordon levitt is an angsty teen boy being raised by a single mom sarah played by laurie Metcalf. Jim helps his mom run her business, the Benbow Inn, but he actually spends most of his time grinding sick tricks on his solar sailboard and getting in trouble with the local robot constables. One day, a mysterious traveler crash lands at the inn. He warns Jim to beware the cyborg. He hands him a golden orb and dies. Suddenly, a band of pirates arrive in search of the object, forcing Jim, his mom, and their friend, Dr. Delbert Doppler, played by David Hype Pierce, to flee as the marauders ransack and burn down the inn. Back at Doppler's place, the trio realize what they have is a map to the legendary treasure planet and they hatch a plan. Jim and Doppler will hire a ship and a crew to take them to their secret destination, and hopes to bring home the treasure and rebuild the inn.
0: Yeah, a lot of cool stuff in this early section. Yeah, uh, the I mean, the solar surfboard is very tropey, having like the main character start out like doing some kind of extreme sport or being yeah. rebellious in some way. But the visuals are so cool, you almost don't mind. Like it's so beautifully animated.
1: It's nicely done. It moves quickly. It has yeah, it has the obligatory like angry kids. Grinding rails and just like yelling for no reason in joy and anger as he as he unleashes on his board. But yeah, it's cool to look at. It's got good energy. And you're like, okay, I'm with it. We've thoroughly, in the first five, ten minutes of the film, we've set up who this kid is because we've got a glimpse of him as a pirate story-loving child and then as an angry teenager.
0: Right, he's reading the, the tale of Captain Flint. And even Flint's a little scary-looking in this. Yeah. He's like big cyborg dude and uh, with his kind of scary mask on.
1: Yeah, he's got three rows of eyeballs. Yeah, he's a freak.
0: Then, can we talk about Jim Hawkins' haircut in this fucking movie? Yes. <laughs> he has a bowl cut and then it's shaved, and then he has a ponytail like at the base of his neck.
1: Yeah, he's got that <laughs> Padawan rat tail thing going on.
0: The way I, I looked at it, and maybe it was the way he was drawn, but it looks like it's just the bowl cut and then skin and then the ponytail is like a separate thing.
1: I didn't like necessarily pin down the origin point of the rat tail, but it, I think that's the quality of a rat tail is that you grow it from the base of your neck rather than like from the crown of your head.
0: Is, is quality the word we're going to use for that? <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe defining characteristic, but there's no quality with that <laughs> with that haircut. It immediately brought him down a peg in my butt. Oh, Peg, more pirate puns. <laughs>
1: he's not the most appealing character design to me. Actually, to me, more than like, whatever, he's got this haircut. But to me, the weird thing about his character design is that he has what I call a unibrow. It's not really a unibrow because his eyebrows don't mean in the middle, but his eyebrow ridge. I mean, it's a simple line drawing character. But he constantly has this shadow that goes straight across his eyes, including the bridge of his nose, which suggests that he has this large protruding eyebrow ridge that goes straight all the way across. It just makes him look weird and neanderthal. Did you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, and his face is drawn in an interesting way, too, like where they put cheekbones and stuff. It it makes him look gaunt at times and really old at others. I don't know I feel like they could have spent more time ironing out his character design to make us relate to him more. And I know you're a little bit more of a Treasure Island scholar than I am, but he he's uh, a young boy in the book, right?
1: I tried to look into that. And I thank you for recognizing my scholarship in this area, which involves going all the way to Wikipedia and reading. Entirety. Oh, I thought you had read Treasure Island. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I haven't, But I did read the, the full entry today, just so I would have some, some kind of background. <laughs> and in, in the Wikipedia, although I heard some people in discussion of the film talk about him being a younger cabin boy, and there certainly were like younger cabin boys that were on ships, if we know our master and commander style lore. In the Wikipedia, it seems to sum him up as a mid-teens. So that's not too far okay. from what he looks like.
0: Yeah, no, that's accurate. I pegged him at 15, 16, so I can't be too... Yeah, I don't think it's too far off from okay. who he was in the book. And then the arrival of Billy Bones here. Is done really well and really dramatically, I think. That was a super kind of scary, tense moment where he's just saying, beware the cyborg. And I mean, we come to find out the cyborg's not that scary, but they really set him up to be this like terrifying mega
1: villain. And it's cool, and like they waste no time. This thing crashes, Jim slides down the roof and runs over, and Billy Bones pops out and he's Dying like hell, he's just choking and sputtering, and he's so ominous in his warning: "Beware the cyborg!" And they pull him inside, and he dies. And so that's another thing: like this character didn't do anything wrong. Like dies in front of the young hero. So maybe that's a little bit like something that would you wouldn't want to show your kids. I'm like making you sound bad for like, oh, I would right, never what show you this to a four year old. That would be <laughs> the worst thing I could do as a parent. No, but it's scary. And I love him. And he's a cool ass big round turtle man.
0: Yeah, it's sad he died because he probably would have lived to like 140. His <laughs> turtles have a, a crazy long lifespan. So and he's a really big one. And I think the bigger ones live longer. So it's
1: a real shame. Yeah,
0: Billy Bones man cut cut down in his prime. He was like eighty. He's a young man in turtle. but he's a really really cool character design on him he's big turtle man in a trench coat i guess it doesn't sound that cool it sounds like something (laughs) from the parts of teenage mutant turtles where they try to go undercover and buy a pizza but trust me it looks cool Uh it looks cool
1: and it propels the story forward we talked about the propulsive action like it wastes no time it's bam he's there and he's like bam i'm dead fucking watch out here's a fucking thing and then two seconds later pirates are crashing through the front door burning the place down it's like holy shit, we got to run. And there's no time to even think about it.
0: And then Doppler is, you think he's going to be the voice of reason? And no, we can't do this. And then nope, he's on board. He's packing. This felt like a natural song break moment where he starts throwing all his stuff in a suitcase. It had the rhythm of a Disney song placement, like I was expecting one there. Yeah. And then I remember there's no songs in this movie. The characters don't sing in this movie. There are songs, obviously.
1: There's a couple songs, but yeah, it's not a musical. That's one one of the distinguishing characteristics about this that we'll talk about, how it separates it from its other Disney Successes surrounding it. But like, yeah, I think because these guys, Musker and Clemens, come from that world, they still go through the same story beats. So it's possible to recognize where you meet characters and they do kind of the same things, only they don't spend five minutes singing a song about it. They just do it and move on.
0: I want to talk about Doppler a little bit and maybe not Doppler so much as David Hyde Pierce in general. I found myself getting annoyed with this character and maybe it's just because I've heard David Hyde Pierce's voice so many times playing this exact same character. It feels like kind of cliche at this point. I think the Doppler character, even though he has a nice arc and I like where they take his character in the long run, kind of grated on me in these early parts. Did you have any of that or am I just way out of line.
1: No, I know what you mean. I didn't totally love David Hyde Pierce in this, and I don't know if it's because of other things that I've hurt or just this character. This character, is, it's its a David I. Pierce character. It's very uptight. It's goofy and airheaded sometimes, but overly pompous. And it's fine as this foil, as this adult character who makes some of the mistakes and helps but is insufficient to lead our hero to the end of the journey. So the hero has to do some growing up and take on things himself and improve himself. And it's all good, but he's also becomes the romantic partner for Captain America. And I just thought he was woefully inadequate to be... Or dude.
0: I agree. That should have been me. We know, based on our Cats episode, how I feel about anthropomorphic cats. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Go back and listen to that episode if you're unfamiliar.
1: Please, yes. The, yeah, he's
0: like Obi-Wan Kenobi if Obi-Wan Kenobi was a giant nerd. Like, no thanks. I don't know. It's, it's a tropey character. It's very common in Disney movies. He's like Zazu from The Lion King. He's serving that same role uh-huh. of being like the uptight kind of like the guide for the main character and to lead him on his hero's journey. but occasionally. You'd be like, no, you can't do that. And I don't know. Maybe I've just seen too many Disney movies lately, but I'm kind of over it.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a great actor and a great voice actor. And so he totally makes everything work, but it is it is the most sort of stock part of the movie and the least endearing.
0: And he's also like a kind of a dog, right? That's what you took away from it. He's kind of a dog, right?
1: Yeah, he's a dog. And the thing that let me know for sure he is a dog type of an alien is that he tucks into a bowl of Alponian chowder. Which some is of the which like-, sci-
0: like some of those little sci-fi by moments were my least favorite of the movie, uh, specifically the fart monster, which we'll talk about <laughs> later.
1: Yeah. What else from yeah. the section
0: did you want to go over?
1: We talked a little bit about the cool 3D of the sailboarding intro scene, but one of the most iconic moments of this movie is when they say, hey, we're headed to space. And they look out the window and you see the beautiful crescent moon in the sky and you zoom in and in and it's not a moon. That's um, no a moon. <laughs> as they say in Star Wars land, it's a kick-ass space station and they keep zooming in and it's this cool crescent-shaped and it's got all these ships and docks and piers and people crawling all over it and it's badass and so that's definitely an ooh wow kind of moment in the 3d animation of this movie
0: yeah that design is just so cool and i'm still a little unclear about what the rules of gravity are at the space station and how that all works but you know what I'm along for the ride because you make it look engaging enough I'm not going to pick nits
1: I think that's one of the things to me that was a plus of this movie is that it had an original and unique sci-fi set of rules for its world it's definitely a sci-fi world they travel through space but it's got this very heavy with the traditional elements too and it has these rules which because it's not a hardcore sci-fi movie it doesn't spend time explaining the rules it's just like yeah of course you sail through space on the winds of the ethereum which we referred to briefly in the beginning that's fine
0: though like you said if you set up your story to be that kind of story then great i don't need more than that
1: no like i was actually i i Found it thrilling that like they could then show you that they raise the sails and they talk about this something solar is happening in the sails and there's a beam of energy that comes down through the main mast of the ship. And you're like, you don't need it explained, but you're like, yeah, this is some cool combo of a spacey sci-fi and old fashioned sailing ships. And it's just cool. Like I never choked on that or it didn't slow me down.
0: So should we jump through to the rest of the story?
1: Sure. Let's hear what happens after that.
0: Alright, so Jim and Doppler shove off aboard the RLS Legacy, helmed by the steadfast Captain Amelia Smollett played by Emma Thompson. She warns Doppler not to talk about the map or treasure in front of the motley crew he hired. Jim is put to work and has some friction with the ornery crew, but during the voyage he starts to gain self-confidence under the tutelage of the ship's cook John Silver, played by Brian Murray, who is suspiciously a cyborg. Just before they reach the planet, Jim overhears Silver and his band of men discussing their plans. When Silver catches Jim snooping, the pirates break into to open mutiny and take over the ship. Jim, Doppler, and Amelia flee, but their longboat is damaged in the escape and crash lands on Treasure Planet. Lucky accident.
1: Yeah, thank God they were <laughs> almost there.
0: Right. 99% of the way there and just crash lands out this place nobody could find.
1: Yeah. Super cool, though. Like we said, the story is propulsive. The action is really engaging, right? That scene where the pirates break into mutiny and the three of them are running through the corridors of the ship and jumping onto the boat and trying to get it out of the hatch. Like, that action just really worked for me. Like, it's really fun. And this is sort of the other use of the 3D. It's there for the spacey flying scenes, which is obvious, like, okay, yeah, they're going to do spaceships and stuff in 3D. But just... The sort of action and dramatic scenes when the camera does a big move or the camera follows them running down a hall, it really grabs you because you don't expect to see that in this movie that looks very traditional 2D hand-drawn. And When all of a sudden that happens, it like sucks you right into the action.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's utilized in the best way, which is sparingly. Like, it's used to enhance things and not, when everything is CGI, it just... Your eyes glaze over after a certain point. But when it's used this way, it's so much more interesting to look at. And yeah, you know, kudos to these guys for taking the risk. I mean, I guess that's why it was so expensive exactly. to combine all these technologies and that you need experts for every single type of animation you're doing. But it looks so fucking cool. So I understand why they were gung ho about it. More pirate puns. Totally. They,
1: I mean, they were, they were, they spent the money. Like they did not scrimp. But they knew they were spending a lot of money, so they made every time count when they like, go, okay, this is a point where the camera needs to fly into John Silver's face and then rotate around and just set the action rolling. And it's, it's really cool. They're just really artistic choices from the directors.
0: And it was interesting having the character of John Silver... All his human parts be 2D animated, but his arm and his leg are 3D animation. So it's yeah. like a fun, and it works so seamlessly. But if you look really closely, you can just see how much more advanced. And it makes sense, given he's part cyborg. Or at yeah. you can't be part cyborg, he's part robot and he is a cyborg
1: that's what defines him as a cyborg but he's yeah. such a great character on all those levels on his acting on his design on his cyborgness it's such a shame that this movie doesn't live on in the like top tier of the disney canon because you would have all kinds of cool stuff from him at the theme parks and he's just such a strong character and it's what a tragedy that he's like tucked away under the bottom drawer yeah
0: kind of forgotten yeah. And even just aside from his design and the voice acting is so good, but just the character itself is a complex character for a children's story because he's never outright villain or outright hero. And even to, to the very end, like he clearly cares for Jim and has a real soft spot for him, but he's still after that treasure. And you can't even really call it a betrayal after a certain point because you know, his cards are on the table and he's still acting like he wants that treasure more than anything, kind of being in the hero's thing, which is not unheard of for movies especially
1: pirate movies. But for a kid's movie, it's a little bit complex, I think. I totally agree. I think that's, for me, what really puts this movie over the top is the complexity of that character and the fact it works. It doesn't fall apart. This is the same guy who, in silhouette, smashed into the inn and burned their inn down in the first few minutes of the movie. And yet he successfully becomes a loving father figure to Jim. And it somehow works. It's it's just a testament to how skillfully they handled this complexity.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just good writing and yeah. good storytelling to make that work. And then we already mentioned Emma Thompson, just amazing as Captain Amelia.
1: Like, she's so cool. Like just from the from the get-go, you love her.
0: She's an MVP. Her character's badass. She's funny. She's, I'm not going to say sexy, but you know, if you think so, I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> yeah.
1: I feel safe saying that. Yeah, she's hot. And she's so confident and confidence-inspiring from the moment we meet her, and yet also not a self-serious female hero in the Disney molds. like She doesn't have a chip on her shoulder. She is super competent and also just tweaking everybody's nose constantly in a fun-spirited way, and it's just such a cool character.
0: Yeah, and the way that Doppler feels like them giving into that traditional tropiness of certain Disney characters, Captain Amelia feels like them actively defying it. It's completely outside the box for for what we've seen from Disney with these type of characters. You'll get strong female characters in Disney. stories stories, but a lot of times they can only be strong and that's like their defining trait. Right. So she's really got a lot of layers. We keep using the word layers because it's true though, like they really set out to make an adult story for kids. And maybe that's part of why I didn't connect with a wide audience, but it really worked for me.
1: And more reason why she totally outclassed Doppler and like she she married way below where she could have gotten. But, you know, good for them both. I hope they're happy.
0: Yeah. Well, we we would have found (laughs) out more about their life in the sequel that got canceled. But now we may never know. So Silver's crew is made up of this ragtag group of swashbuckling weirdo aliens and uh a few of them deserve some individual attention like scroop
1: yes so scroop scary. Is scary as fuck he is really scary the design of him the things he does and then the actor who voices him just nails it it's so terrifying when so prints.
0: menacing yeah. yeah that voice is so gravelly and and just like that lower register and everything he says is so evil. I don't know. Yeah, cool character.
1: And he's super cool for the development of the John Silver character because Silver is the only one who can stand up to Scroop and he does in a badass way so you, all of a sudden he becomes this hero for defending Jim from Scroop even though he has to play both sides of it to keep the confidence of his crew and also protect Jim at the same time. But yeah, it makes for a really cool pairing of couple scary badasses facing off.
0: Yeah, Mr. Arrow tried to stand up to him. That didn't really work out for him.
1: Poor Mr. Arrow.
0: I hated the fart monster. I think I mentioned that briefly, <laughs> but since we're talking about the crew, uh, I've just got to make it known. That felt like something out of a different movie to me.
1: It was definitely thrown in there like, oh, if any of the kids are getting restless, we better throw a fart creature on screen right now. And He's and covered giggles.
0: in buttholes. Everything, Everywhere you look on his body is just a, a sphincter of some sort. and Tentacle no thanks, man. trunks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they pipe up and make gross noises. And they come back to him several times. The gym ends up sleeping in the bunk underneath him. It's like, yeah, we didn't need him.
0: When I saw him in the spaceport, I was like, all right, like you got your little fart joke in there. And then I was like, oh, he's on the fucking ship too. Come on. But yeah. So let's talk about Mr. Arrow when they come into this solar storm.
1: Yeah. What happens? A nearby star goes supernova. And so first the blast almost takes their ship out. And then this giant chunk of something is coming towards them. And it turns around because the blast has turned into a black hole. And now the shit has really gone south as they're trying to figure out how to knock it sucked up. So Jim is
0: in charge of securing all the lifelines, which everyone ties around their waist in case they get thrown overboard. They'll be still tethered to the boat somehow. Right. And he does a bang up job of it. Mr. Arrow goes overboard and his lifeline saves him. But Then Scroop sees an opportunity to get rid of Mr. Arrow, cuts his rope, and he falls into a black hole and perishes. That's a pretty fucked up way to die, man.
1: Yeah, screaming as he goes, looking right into the camera.
0: Close up of his anguished face. Yeah,
1: the terror in his eyes as he falls into a black hole to his death pretty harsh and uh, yeah. yeah like alluded to earlier like pretty scary to lose that authority figure and that guy who was keeping our hero safe and now like this happens at the end after the montage where silver and jim's relationship has matured and jim has started to flourish under having a father figure and he feels confident about himself. That's how he learned to tie the knots. And then he successfully does it. And he thinks like he is just on top of the world. He finally feels comfortable in the world. And then Scroop not only kills the first mate, but kills Jim's self-confidence. And after that, he's like, I'm just a piece of shit. I'm never going to be any good.
0: Right. But he was right. He did a good job. I mean, that's the tragedy of that moment is... He didn't do anything wrong. He tied all the knots correctly, and he doesn't know what Scroop did, So, but Silver does.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and we know that's another nod. We know that Silver is genuinely good because he feels the need to go comfort Jim after this and tell him it wasn't your fault, even though he doesn't explain that, yeah, my guy did it. Right.
0: He's got to be vague because he can't out his fellow mutineer. So before we <laughs> leave
1: this section, we should talk about that montage in which we saw the budding father-son relationship to the tune of a certain goo-goo pop star of the late 90s. What's your vibe on the on the Resnick action?
0: I thought the song was fine. I thought the montage was corny, but good. It gives us a little bit of backstory about Jim's relationship with his own father, yeah. which is valuable maybe to see why he takes to silver so quickly. The song was very much a goo-goo doll so Song. I was shocked to find out that they're not actually Canadian. They have very Canadian energy to me.
1: Okay, yeah, um, I know what you that mean. That makes sense. But they're from <laughs> uh, they're from Buffalo, though, so they're, like, really right. Yeah, they could be going over the border anytime.
0: But it was fine. It really stamps this movie into a place in time, though. You know, like, 2002 is the only time a Goo Goo Dolls song would be in a movie with this budget. You had City of Angels, they had the big hit from that. It's like They made their bread and butter on movie soundtracks, but yeah. I don't think they were all that in 2002. Hadn't their moment passed a little bit by then?
1: Yeah, I think they coasted on that for a while, but yeah, they didn't get back to that 98, I guess was Iris and then yeah. they had that
0: big album which was something around the girl wasn't that dizzy up the girl yeah that was 98 okay. that was definitely their peak a boy named goo and dizzy up the girl
1: yeah so they were, it's not like they were washed up and five years too late but they were not gonna go back and reclaim that height that they had hit before and this isn't even technically goo goo dolls it's john resnick is the drummer. oh yeah i
0: didn't even i didn't even think to check it just sounds so much like a goo goo Dolls song i assumed but i mean yeah i don't know what
1: the difference <laughs> is maybe a different drummer and stuff
0: working with studio musicians but I I think B.V. Mac recorded the song for the soundtrack too. It was there's two recordings of it out there, I believe. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, I know
1: there's two songs in this and one of them has a, a soundtrack version that's sort of more popified
0: yeah bb mac the the british boy band from the early aughts late 90s but
1: i feel like i wouldn't mind a cut of this movie that
0: replaces the goo goo doll song with something a little more timeless it feels very late 90s early aughts and a movie like this i don't necessarily want to have that thought when i'm watching it like oh it takes you out of it a little bit This doesn't feel contemporary. Like, it should feel, I don't know, like have a fucking sea shanty in that scene.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or just a Diane Warren pop song that could span any decades. This is, like you said, this is very much music of a time. It instantly takes you back to wherever you were in 1998, hearing that sound. And I was never, like, a big fan of that. But I get, like, the song works. It has some emotional valence to it. The only thing that I would argue in its favor is that Johnny Resnick sounds like... Joseph Gordon Levitt, if he were singing the song, like you can almost picture that it's him singing.
0: Yeah, they do have kind of a similar vocal composition, but and it's not a bad song. I'm not trying to disparage the song. Goo Goo Dolls know how to write a good pop song, like something that'll make you feel on the surface level. It, it doesn't take anything away from the movie, but I just think it would play better. 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line if it had a different song in that spot.
1: But like you said, it's a cool montage. There's one scene that's really poignant that just happens with the music playing over of young Jim coming out to his living room and seeing his mom sobbing with her head in her hands at the kitchen table and then running outside and seeing his father stepping aboard a ship and leaving them permanently and him being unable to catch up as the ship sails away. And it's actually like, wow, that's a heavy moment.
0: Yeah, that has some, uh, some personal resonance for me. So that was an effective way to play the montage the scenes with jim and john there's a few too many of them like in that yeah. montage i feel like they were like we have to stretch this to the length of the song so
1: yeah, yeah right, he's teaching
0: him how to tie a knot and now he's teaching
1: like you know we, we could now they're peeling potatoes for 35 seconds, yeah. We get
0: the idea after a few. I think it was valuable to give us the backstory on his biological father and kind of juxtapose that with his relationship with John and then, you know, move on. But yeah, now no. it goes on a little too long. Yeah, I know what you mean. All right, so you ready to take us home?
1: Yeah, so after crash landing on Treasure Planet, our heroes are befriended by a scatterbrain robot named Ben, played by Martin Short, who helps Jim retrieve the map. But... Silver and his pirate mob capture them all and force Jim to lead them through a transportation portal to the treasure. When a booby trap starts to destroy the entire planet, Silver chooses to abandon the gold in order to save Jim's life. Then Jim uses his rocket sailboarding skills to lead the heroes, plus Silver, on a daring last-second escape through the portal. Once clear of the exploding planet, Jim lets Silver go free and Silver thanks him with a handful of salvaged treasure. In the final... Happy scene. Sarah has used the treasure to rebuild the inn. Doppler and Amelia have married and had a litter of babies. And Jim is now a promising interstellar cadet.
0: Yeah, exciting stuff going on here. Ben. What a fun character.
1: Yes. The star of this of this final act of the movie is Ben. Like he really ignites just when you're getting tired of the pirate action, here comes this new, incredibly lively Martin Short character to just take you to somewhere you had no idea the movie was going to take you.
0: Yeah, it's a bioelectronic navigator. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Know. Played by Martin Short. You just know that would have been fucking Josh Gad if they made this movie today.
1: (laughs) Thank God it was Martin Short.
0: Did you peg it as Martin Short right away?
1: No, I did not. I had the delightful experience of going, who is this incredible actor with this energy? It feels familiar, but I can't tell who it is. And I had to look him up after. And I think that's why I liked it so much is that he's not doing the stereotypical Martin Short voice that you associate with him later in his career. Well, what about you?
0: No, I had to go to IMDb because I was like, man, that voice, I know that voice. And I could not figure out where it is. And if he had been doing more. More of a, what's his Glick character? Jimmy Glick. Yeah. Jimmy Glick. Like, I would have pegged it immediately, but he's he's really doing a little bit of a character with it and not just being Martin Short. And I dug it. Yeah. It really worked for me.
1: Yeah. It's a character that goes nutty sometimes the way you expect Martin Short to do, to just burst off in weird directions. But it also has, like, straight lines and emotional uh, realness to him. And it's just yeah it's super fun it's that's something that we wanted animated movies to do is introduce us to new funny characters that everyone would then know and love like oh my god that's the so-and-so from the disney movie and this is one of those but again it's it's buried and and nobody remembers him
0: yeah he's five times as endearing as fucking Olaf from frozen but who's the (laughs) one selling all the toys Olaf? i know
1: we can't get a ben toy yeah i mean
0: i like the frozen movies i can't lie but they're not Treasure Planet good. Then the exciting reveal that Doppler and Amelia are married with kids now. Bill Murray would call this Old Testament type stuff. <laughs> Mass hysteria, dogs and cats living together. Yep. But, you know, good for Doppler. Punching way above his weight class here.
1: And her genes were stronger, too, because there's, there's one little mini Doppler in the letter and a bunch of mini Amelia's.
0: Yeah, I guess that they knew they were like, we got to let her have the upper hand in this relationship somehow. And the sailboarding coming back. we Yeah, we check off sailboard. Yeah, it was uh,
1: off solar sailboard. Like we knew that it wasn't just a fun uh, screaming at the world scene in the beginning. He uses his skills to save them all in the end. And uh, it's nice. It's impressive. Like it's again, it's an action scene that totally works. I mean, you get some of that third act action movie fatigue a little bit in this because a lot of it, it comes at you hard and fast. But there's real drama, like actually the big drama of this scene as the planet is self-destructing. They realize that the last chance to get some gold out of there is on the old pirate's ship that's parked in the pile of gold. Jim gets Flint's ship, Jim gets it flying, Silver hops on board, and this is the last chance to get out of there with any substantial amount of gold. And then it immediately gets... Zarked in half with one of the big self-destruct lasers and Jim gets thrown and he's hanging by a thread. And that's a really good real moment like where Silver has to make that decision. Am I chasing my dream or am I saving this kid that I seem to somehow have an affection for and he makes the good choice that makes him a hero
0: i mean it's a textbook hero's journey for him and it really pays off uh that was a very emotional scene i thought it worked really well and even just like the technical aspects that the map they think they have is really a portal and all this stuff like it all it all pays off and it makes a lot of sense within the world that they've set up and even though it is like you said that kind of action scene that goes on for a while that tends to end these kind of movies that can cause you to get a little bored at times. I didn't really notice that. I almost took a break because I was up late watching this and I I had 20 minutes to go and I was like, man, I'm really tired. I think I should turn this (laughs) off and revisit it tomorrow but I couldn't shut it off. I was like, I gotta see this through and that's rare because usually the ends of movies are my least favorite part. Those kind of long, drawn out action scenes that tend to end these movies but no, this one I I really enjoyed. Just the art style was so cool too that it kept me interested.
1: Yeah, it's great to look at. It's really done well and because I think part of what keeps it alive are those actual character choices that are happening throughout the action. It's not just obstacles. A lot of action movies devolve into just obstacle busting at the end. It's like, oh yeah, they've got to blow up all the things to get through the thing. But this is like characters are making choices and it's actually a, big it's a brave thing for Jim to say I'm gonna I'm gonna get us out of here trust me he makes this makeshift sailboard and then Silver actually props up his thing and he convinces the other two Doppler and Amelia to go with him and go look no you got to trust the kid he's got the goods and he's gonna get us out of here and so there's real like character story stuff happening in the midst of this super loud chaotic crash bang action
0: yeah if you compare it to the like the big action scene at the end of another movie we covered like R.I.P.D. where that's Like textbook just obstacle busting that has no emotional stakes and nothing really to resolve for the heroes except for you gotta do this thing before this thing happens or we're all gonna die. Like there's no complexity to it at all. And this actually gave some stakes beyond living or dying about what type of person do you want to be. And that's why I think it kept me interested.
1: Yeah, that's why it's such a dang good movie.
0: I almost took a half star off my review, though, for the John Silver Cloud at the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) You guys fucking kidding me with this thing? Like he looks up at the sky. Off on that. <laughs>
1: John Silver has a funny face. He's some kind of weird bear man. Man Bear Pig right. kind of a thing. And um
0: He's super surreal.
1: And why is he why did I dunno.
0: Yeah, like they did that with Mufasa already. Oh, yeah. That wasn't even that long ago. Was it like seven years earlier? Come on, guys. We've seen this trick before.
1: Maybe that's like a studio note that came down from the top, like yeah, uh, you guys gotta do a cloud. <laughs> yeah. If you don't do movie. a face
0: in the cloud, we're gonna slash your marketing <laughs> budget or whatever. For all the good it did. Yeah. <laughs> so that was Treasure Planet. Fucking awesome movie. So much fun.
1: So good. I feel good that we're got to talk about this movie. Maybe a few more people will see it.
0: Yeah. I haven't shared my screen with you specifically because I want to see if you can guess. As we mentioned, this was Disney's biggest loss up until 2011. There have been three movies since that have lost more for Disney. Can you guess them?
1: Um, I cheated because I read your thing. Oh shit! You're right.
0: I sent it to you before the show.
1: And then, I, but also, my brain conveniently forgot it. I'm gonna say the Lone Ranger.
0: That's not yet. That's on there. What were the, what were the other two?
1: And now you stump me. See, this is, it doesn't even help for me to read things because they just evaporate.
0: One of them should be very obvious to you. Uh, John Carter. John Carter. And then, so the third one, I'll give you a hint. It may have been directly responsible for a big part of John Carter's failure, and it had to do with the title.
1: Oh, it was that other Mars movie?
0: Yeah, Mars Needs Moms.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, see, I don't know anything about that. It was
0: such a bomb that Disney was reluctant to include the word Mars in the title of John Carter of Mars and just dropped it to John Carter, which confused and angered audiences. Yeah. So, yeah. so they've had three bigger bombs since 2011, but this was their biggest up to that point. It's got 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it feels more beloved than even that score.
1: Yeah, that's like a solid, decent movie score. But like, I don't know. In, in researching this, I've heard people who were just kind of lukewarm on, on it and found things to dislike. But like... I don't trust those people. Some of those yeah. people also thought Atlantis was in the same category as this movie. And I watched that. That came out a year before this. It was similar Disney sci-fi. It had a lot of things in common. It was a Disney sci-fi anime movie. It had some 3D aspects into it it had a young male hero it was a non-musical thing so it had all these things in common and it just sucked from the story standpoint compared to this movie it was
0: yeah atlantis has a lot in common with this movie except for the quality of this movie this movie blows it away but maybe that's part of it maybe people were hung over from atlantis it made a little more money than this one did it did a little bit better i wouldn't call it a hit by any chance in fact it may have lost money for the studio it was probably but- right around that break even right yeah but There might have been some backlash to that. A lot of people went to see it. Maybe those same people saw the trailers for this and said, I don't want to go see that movie. It looks like Atlantis, which I didn't like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Disney doesn't know what they're doing with with this stuff. And also
0: these sci-fi hybrids.
1: People were like, bring back the princesses or something.
0: Every time we put up the bad signal on Twitter about movies people loved that had bombed, Treasure Planet is always one of our top responses. So I mean, there's a lot of love for this movie out there.
1: Yeah, that's heartening to know.
0: So I don't know where that Rotten Tomato score comes from. I read some of the negative reviews. I couldn't find much substance to them or much that I agreed with. None of the reviews were like, this movie is terrible. And that's part of the problem with Rotten Tomatoes is that it rates reviews that are like, this is okay, but want to spend your money on this other movie, I would do that. And reviews that are like... This movie fucking sucks. Those are ranked the same. Like, those are both negative reviews. So nobody hated this movie. People just had some quibbles with it, as far as I could tell. Also, Muppet Treasure Island was only six years earlier. That was another Disney product that kind of retold the Treasure Island story. And that also lost money. So... It might have been some fatigue. I don't yeah. know.
1: I didn't get to see that. I've seen scenes from it, but I mean, I hate to see the Muppets uh, not make it because they're so lovable. Yeah.
0: I mean, I love Muppet Treasure Island. It's a really fun movie. I watched that a ton as a kid. Most of my understanding about the Treasure Island story comes from Muppet Treasure Island. So,
1: and I think they were actually a little more faithful in terms of preserving more of the characters and some more of the elements of the original.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's pretty close to the book, as far as I understand it. Obviously, some of it is lightened up for the audience they're they're trying to appeal to, but Treasure Island's not like an insanely violent or salacious book. They didn't have to change too much.
1: No, but they also didn't want to be... Killing off a lot of Muppets in the middle of the movie, so they, yeah. I get why they had to make some
0: pivots. <laughs> they had to dull the edges a little bit, but yeah. still, it's a uh, Muppet Treasure Island. That'll probably be an episode at some point. Yeah, that would be fun
1: to come back around to that.
0: That movie rules. Uh, I also tried to watch Black Sails, but I ran out of time, which was a really interesting show on Stars that was made in like the mid twenty tens. It just wrapped up its final season a year or two ago I think. Okay. And it's a prequel to Treasure Island, told in like a kind of gritty realistic R-rated Starzy way, what they did with Spartacus. Okay. But a little less pulpy than Spartacus, a little more grounded. Uh good show though. Recommend it if you're into the Treasure Island story and you want to see it further.
1: Yeah, now that I'm immersed in the story, I'm curious to to see how that sort of premium cable prequel series plays out.
0: Yeah, a lot like Spartacus, you got to give it a few episodes to find itself, and then it it pays off, I think. Let's talk about the opening weekend for this one. Interesting cast of movies they had to deal with. So it opened at fourth place. That's not great for a big $140 million Disney movie. No. And that was behind Die Another Day, which had already been out for a week. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which had already been out for three weeks. And The Santa Claus 2, another
1: Disney movie that had already been out for four weeks. Yeah, that's the shocker. Like, Harry Potter is probably my main thesis as to what could have choked off the audience for this movie. Is just that people looking for fantasy adventure stuff went to Harry Potter. I mean Harry Potter was a phenomenon at this time. This was the second movie in the series. So it was like yeah. people were warmed up and and just ready for that stuff and that movie was I think the second biggest movie of the year. It was a really big earner. So I get it like you that's kind of running into a buzzsaw even in the third week that's still pretty early in the run of a movie that massive. But The Santa Claus 2 Fucking Tim Allen coming back (laughs) to dig up more shit. And they just got smoked by him in week four.
0: I know. Uh, I know. Harry Potter, I definitely understand because especially those early Harry Potter movies were geared more towards kids. I feel like they tried to scale those movies up to appeal to the same fans throughout. If you liked Chamber of Secrets, you would also like Prisoner of Azkaban as you got like a couple of years older, they tried to make it a little more mature. So early in the series, it was still PG type series and would appeal to a lot of the same fans as Treasure Planet. The Santa Claus too though, what a piece of shit. Like. <laughs> Can't justify that.
1: No, I what mean, were people thinking
0: it blows my mind. I have a theory that pirates are just up until Pirates of the Caribbean, pirates were just box office poison.
1: Yeah, tell me your theory because I love pirates. And so I like to naturally assume that like, everyone loves pirate stuff. And certainly if you started thinking about them around that time of Pirates of the Caribbean, it's like, yeah, of course, everyone loves pirates. But uh, tell me your thesis of how they used to be poison. I
0: mean, I love pirates too, but they were not hits at the box office. So you had The Island in 1980, which made 15 million on a 22 million dollar budget. Then you go 83. You had Yellowbeard, four million on a 10 million dollar budget. Nathan Hayes, two million on an eight million dollar budget. Pirates. 6.3 million on a 40 million dollar budget. Wow. Then you've got the Princess Bride, borderline bomb. It probably lost a little money, made 30 million on a 16 million dollar budget. So it didn't even double its budget, which means it probably lost a little bit of money. Yeah. You've got Cutthroat Island, one of the most famous bombs of all time, 10 million on a 98 million dollar budget. And even Hook which I loved as a kid and watched on repeat. It was like one of the VHS tapes I owned. I came to find out recently that it was considered a disappointment financially. It made $300 million on a $70 million budget, which sounds good, but apparently the marketing budget for this movie was massive. And they spent so much on advertising that everybody thought it was a little bit of a letdown. Spielberg's talked about not being happy with the quality of the movie and people from the studio have talked about thinking it would be a bigger hit. And that was still the highest grossing pirate movie of all time until the pirates of the Caribbean movies. And then you've got Waterworld, which is kind of a pirate movie and one of the most famous bombs of all time.
1: Well, I'm willing to blame Kevin Waterworld (laughs) Costner for all of this nonsense, even though he clearly did not create it. But like, maybe if we went further back, it seems like pirate movies were a staple thing, right? Errol Flynn was like, one of the biggest movie stars ever during his era. And then somehow they just fell out of fashion. I guess that happened to Westerns too, for a while.
0: Yeah. Westerns went through a spell where they couldn't really catch a break at the box office. And then they came back at some point. Yeah. With
1: Unforgiven or whatever, brought the Western back. And maybe it took uh, Johnny Depp to bring the pirate movie back.
0: Right. And then there's like neo-Westerns too. Like No Country for Old Men is kind of a Western, even though it takes place in the modern day. So they were able to adapt. But Pirate movies for the modern day, unless you count something like Captain Phillips, I wouldn't really call that a pirate movie. It like, Doesn't
1: have the same charms. It's right. a cool movie. Does not bring you the same genre payoff if you're looking for pirates, eye patches and parrots.
0: Yeah. So that's my theory. I think pirates were just out of fashion for the longest And it took... Something big like Pirates of the Caribbean to kick it out of its slump. And movies at sea are famously expensive and difficult to shoot. Right. So I feel like a lot of those movies maybe cost more than the studio wanted to spend. And that equates to them being failures when they would have probably been a smaller movie if they hadn't had to shoot in the water. Yeah. Like you can make... Money fifteen point seven million dollars for the island. Yeah, if your budget was five million, but no, you had to shoot in the water, so your budget's now twenty million. I mean, it's just it's a huge pain in the ass. Everyone talks about it when there's any movie set at sea. Like Master and Commander was a famously difficult shoot. Even the parts of the Caribbean movies, there's horror stories from the crew.
1: Yeah, I know that story about Master and Commander. That it's a shame that sort of it just couldn't recoup, and it was so cool, and yet we never got to extend that series.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't even like a disaster of a bomb. It was just one of those ones that it. maybe made a tiny bit of money or lost a tiny bit of money, but it wasn't worth the effort to get back out there and try it again. But it's an awesome movie. If you guys are listening and haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking it out.
1: It's great.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about Clements and Musker, where they went after this?
1: So these guys, like you said in the early explanation, they've been trying to get this thing made. And in the meantime, they were forced to make some of Disney's most beloved modern classics like to pass (laughs) the time waiting to make this movie.
0: Yeah, they made The Great Mouse Detective. They made The Little Mermaid. They made Aladdin. And then the movie right before this one was Hercules, which wasn't a bomb, but it was a little bit of a disappointment. It had a bigger budget and it made $250 million, $85 million budget. So it cleared a profit, but would not... Be considered a massive hit by disney standards i wouldn't think so then they went on to make two more movies after this one uh, a lot of time in between them both they didn't work they weren't prolific during this period but they made princess and the frog which was a great movie that is animated all in 2d disney's most recent fully 2d animated movie and probably the last one they'll ever do because they're expensive and time consuming but a really fun movie that was a hit and then they did moana which is great i love moana and also a big hit so this didn't seem to waylay their careers at all Maybe Maybe slowed them down and they were a little more selective with their projects, but they still went on to have success after this movie.
1: Yeah, I think they can be pretty proud of what they did.
0: And then Rob Edwards was one of the writers of this movie. He worked with Clemens and Musker on the script. Uh, He'd written a lot of TV, but this was his first film project. And he worked with them both again on The Princess and the Frog. So it seems like the core creative team was intact for that movie and there was no hard feelings or anything like that. They still maintained a good relationship with Disney, which is great because they're some of the most iconic animated film directors of all time. Yeah. Both officially retired now.
1: Well, we've seen the last of them, but thankfully we haven't seen the last of their movies because we can subscribe to Disney Plus and keep our kids entertained all day and night.
0: That is one streaming service that I will never get rid of. Like, maybe when my kids are out of the house in 20 years, but that's sticking around for the long haul. So, did you have any closing thoughts on Treasure Planet you wanted to give before we signed on out of here?
1: Well, we talked about some of the movies that did better. Do you want to make ourselves angry and going down that list and looking at some of the other movies that did well that year?
0: You know what? It's (laughs) going to make us mad, but let's do it anyway. What do you got for me?
1: Well, so (laughs) The Scorpion King made Uh about $180 million worldwide, and that's fine. What bugs me is that people clamored to see The Rock's character spin off into a sequel, but they wouldn't go see Mr. Arrow, a literal Rock character, spin off into a black hole.
0: Yeah. I mean, talk about The Rock. We had the real rock right there on our screen.
1: People think spinoffs are cool. He did a spinoff. He screamed as he died in a black hole. And yet that wasn't enough for people.
0: Who knows what they wanted? More like the Borpian King because I was bored watching that movie. (laughs) Boo. I love The Rock. Hate that movie. So you want to know a movie that made $170 million
1: that year? Okay.
0: How do you feel about mice?
1: They can be cute, but I don't want them in my house.
0: Would you trust one to drive a convertible? Oh, I don't know. That's a stretch. Well, people did because they paid $170 million to watch Stuart Little 2. The second one, not (laughs) Stuart Little 1. When I saw that, I was like, Stuart Little, okay, I get it. No. Story Little 2, you've already seen the mouse drive, the fucking convertible. What more do you need from this movie series? Oh, he's he's riding a skateboard on the poster. That's cute. They spent $120 million on this movie. This is a fucking catastrophe. I can't believe this. (laughs) And yeah, Michael J. Fox, he's cute. He's got a cute little voice. It's... Stuart Little 2, not Stuart <laughs> Little 1. No, that's all I need to say. It's just like the Santa Claus too. like these movies. I think we covered it all in the first one, man. Free up some box office money for the movies that deserve it. All right, give me another one.
1: So yeah, Triple X with Vin Diesel. You may remember oh that. Oh boy. One. That made yep. $277 million that year. More than double what Treasure Planet made. I don't get it because what's the difference between these movies? One of these movies is about a rebellious extreme sport athlete who has to go on a dangerous secret mission. And the other one is Triple X. Got him. Just just a weird parallel there.
0: This is another series that went on for way too long. Do
1: you know that they made one recently? I saw there were a bunch of sequels when I wikipedia did. it. And i like, I didn't want to even know. They made one of these pieces of shits in 2017. Like, are you kidding me?
0: That was so recent. So there's been three of these. It's a a trilogy. The trilogy is complete now. At least it was Triple X beat out Treasure Planet. But let's see. What did Triple X2 make? Triple X, State of the Union. That was a bomb, but good. Triple X is a dog shit movie. I hate that movie. I mean, I'm angrier at it right now because we're talking about it in comparison to Treasure Planet. Yeah. So Adam Sandler's
1: a rich asshole, right? Oh, one of the richest and the assholiest.
0: So that's what he is in real real life but do you think people would spend like 175 million dollars to watch him play one in a movie because guess what they fucking did mr deeds made 172 million dollars i guess it's good that alan covert got a paycheck that year but
1: you kidding me i'm so exhausted from sandler from talking about him and that's my boy anything else he did is probably heinous including this movie which i haven't seen mr deeds but i've already written him off because of how badly he offended me with the last one so this is
0: bottom tier sandler too it's not like one of the good ones It's It's not one of the so bad it's good ones even like jack and jill it's like one of the really boring middle of the pack garbage heap sandler movies and somehow it over tripled its budget cost 50 million to make made 172 million dollars just
1: icing on the shit cake that is adam sandler's shitty movies i'm still gonna watch his good ones but i'm not going back that well of
0: yeah i'll watch the Meyerwood stories but i'm not watching mr deeds ever again unless it's a life or death scenario and even then i'm not sure which way i would go deeds or death it's a tough choice it's not as simple as you might think all right well now that we got all sufficiently yeah.
1: angry we punished ourselves by looking at the box office list I would just wrap up my thoughts about Treasure Planet. My biggest takeaway, and we've alluded to it at a bunch of points throughout this discussion of the movie, is just how smart this movie is. We talked about how layered and complex the Silver character is. It's a really smart script. And what I really love about it is the way it respects the audience's intelligence. Just one little example that really hit home with me. Silver comes back down. This is after Jim, he's inside the perp Fruit Barrel. And he overhears them and Silver turns around, has to come back into the room, and he sees that Jim is there. And both of them instantly know that the game is up and they start acting accordingly. In a lesser movie, there would be the, wait, but that means thing, and the thing where the characters explain it to themselves to make sure the audience gets what's going on. But this movie is just like, no, we're fucking moving on. These guys are both smart characters and they both just know the deal and now they're dealing with it. And so that endears me to the movie so much when it treats me with respect for my intelligence.
0: It really is taking a different approach to child's movie storytelling than what we're used to. And I wonder if part of this movie's issue is that maybe it seemed a little too adults for young kids and a little too childish for teenagers. And Uh it it couldn't really peg down its audience while marketing it because it succeeds at being a movie that's for everybody. In my opinion, little kids can watch it and maybe there's a few scenes that will seem scary to them, but overall I think they would enjoy it. And even preteens or teenagers, would have fun with the kind of a little more grown up type of action scenes and themes at play it's like you said it doesn't insult their intelligence but that's a hard thing to get across when you're trying to sell a movie to audiences there's not a lot of jokes that you could put in a trailer that would make sense out of context so I think that's the movie's main issue and why it didn't become more of an immediate success is that it's hard to see where it lands parents might be a little nervous taking their kids to see it even parents that are familiar with the treasure island story might think oh is this going to be appropriate and that's one of those things where you're just ambitious sometimes to a fault and it hurts you in finding your audience and how to speak to them.
1: And I think along those lines, like you're saying, it's earnestly good, but it's not hip. It's not that cool. It's cool in old-fashioned ways, but we have to remember that this is a year after Shrek came out and just blew everything up about what an animated movie was about and how it could be self-aware and meta and ridicule everything else that had happened in the animated genre up to that point point. and so this movie which is very earnest and old-fashioned comes out in the aftermath of that and i think that the young teen audience that might have gone along with it in the past was like not sold just by the one farting alien like it wasn't enough. It was just not cool to go see this movie.
0: Irony and sarcasm are not words in this movie's vocabulary and I think it's to their credit. It's just telling an old-fashioned story and telling it well but I definitely think the climate around animated movies at the time was like you have to do something radically different than we've seen before to get our attention and I mean, that's part of the reason Disney kind of blew up their whole strategy was after this movie but that doesn't mean the movies we got before they blew it up and started fresh are not worthwhile. Clearly they are.
1: Yeah, they hold up.
0: So that was Treasure Planet. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. We will be back next week. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Do what you have to do to keep Blast Zone on your podcast feed because we appreciate you. We do. Shoot us a DM on Twitter. Shoot us an email, blastzonepod at gmail.com. Any questions, suggestions you have, we're always happy to hear from you. Love to hear from you. And we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time
1: in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. (laughs)